Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin this hour with breaking news. Just minutes ago, we learned that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has now been moved to intensive care as he battles coronavirus. Johnson was first admitted to a London hospital last night, 10 days after he first tested positive. The prime minister is one of 1.3 million confirmed coronavirus cases around the globe. There are more than 73,000 deaths from coronavirus worldwide that have been reported. In the, in the United States, more than 10,000 people have died. 10,389 as of this hour. Neighbors, friends, family members. This time last week, there were 1,200 deaths, now more than 10,000. As the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is now warning the U.S. is struggling to get coronavirus under control. First, let's go to CNN's Bianca Novillo in London. Bianca, tell us what you're learning about Boris Johnson. Well, Jake, it's a rapidly developing situation. The last statement that we had from Downing Street was that the Prime Minister was taken to the intensive care unit at 7 p.m. local time. So now that's about two hours ago. At that point, the statement said that he was conscious and was being moved to that unit in case he needed the support of a ventilator. So at that time, it didn't sound like that was the kind of urgent care that he required. But, Jake, let's just look at the timeline of this and what's happened over an incredibly short period. So last night, 8 p.m. in the United Kingdom, about 24 hours ago, the Prime Minister was admitted to St. Thomas's Hospital in London. The statement read that he needed to have routine tests as a precaution because he'd had persistent symptoms after having coronavirus for 10 days. Those symptoms were a fever and a cough. Then we learned this morning at the parliamentary lobby, where we're given more information about the Prime Minister and the government, that he was in good spirits and that he'd had a comfortable evening. At that point, a Russian report claiming that the Prime Minister was on a ventilator was dismissed as disinformation. Then Dominic Raab, who's the Foreign Secretary in the United Kingdom, also our first Secretary of State, so the de facto deputy for Johnson, stood in for him at the daily briefing on coronavirus. He also chaired a 9.15am coronavirus war cabinet, which would usually have been chaired by the Prime Minister this morning. Now at the press conference, which was only four hours ago, Dominic Raab stood there and said that the Prime Minister was comfortable, he was in good spirits and that he was continuing to lead the country. The language was incredibly precise and we did note a deterioration in the sense that originally they were referring to the Prime Minister's condition as mild and now they were calling his, his symptoms persistent. But Rob maintained that the Prime Minister was at the helm giving instructions when necessary. Then just two or three hours later we learned that the Prime Minister had to be admitted to intensive care on the advice of his doctors. And Jake, we now await more information, but we do know that Dominic Raab, that gentleman I just mentioned, will now be deputising for Boris Johnson. He will be the person taking the key decisions in this national emergency. 
And, and Bianca, obviously we don't know a great deal uh, about the prime minister's condition, but if the British government called it disinformation, uh, the report, um, I think you said from Russians, that Boris Johnson was on, to, on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. But we know now he's in intensive care. Correct. Do we know if he is using oxygen or a ventilator? Have, have they disclosed that one way or the other? All that we have disclosed at the moment, Jake, came from the statement which was released about an hour ago. And they said that the Prime Minister remained conscious at this time, given how rapidly his condition has declined. We're talking about an hour and a half ago, the Prime Minister was conscious and that he'd be moved to the intensive care unit as a precaution should he require ventilation to aid his recovery. But now if we consider the fact that the Prime Minister only went into hospital last night and that his condition does appear to have declined quickly, it's difficult to say the situation that he would be in now. Obviously, he's going to get better, more intensive care where he is. He'll have one-on-one -on -one support, which he wouldn't have had before. From the doctors that I've been speaking to, most of the time they'd move patients in Britain into the ICU unit because they need uh, a, a greater source of oxygen than just a nasal tube or ventilation in more extreme cases. But as I mentioned, the Prime Minister had had these persistent symptoms for 10 days. The health secretary and the medical officer who had both been diagnosed positive with coronavirus at the same time as the Prime Minister were back working several days ago, the Prime Minister continuing to decline. Jake, the last time we saw him in person was when he emerged onto the steps of Downing Street on Thursday, and that was to show his support for Britain's National Health Service. He came outside to clap. He was looking worse for wear, not subjectively speaking. You could visibly see signs of sickness. And then he went back in. There's also been the odd video that he's posted on Twitter. But as I understand from my contacts within Downing Street, obviously they were capturing his best moments, trying to keep the morale of the country high. Yeah, it's interesting just because it sounds like uh, the protocols in the UK are, are similar to how they are in the United States, which is um, if you really only get admitted in the United States, if you're having trouble breathing, you can be weak, you can be feverish, you can be in a lot of pain. But if you're not having trouble breathing, you basically, uh, after being examined, are told to go home and rest. Um, you're only really admitted in the United States if you're having difficulty breathing, for the most part. Um, Bianca, thank you so much. CNN's Clarissa Ward uh, joins me now from right outside the hospital where Prime Minister Johnson is being treated. Uh, Clarissa, uh, what are you learning about the Prime Minister's condition? Well, Jake, you know, I've been standing here for the better part of the day uh, reporting lines given to us by 10 Downing Street who have been saying that the prime minister was in good spirits, that this was just a precautionary measure, that he was just going in to get some tests because he'd had these persistent symptoms that had lasted 10 days. And, and you yourself remember that just on Friday, Boris Johnson was saying, oh, it's still mild symptoms, but I can't seem to shake this fever. Well, what a difference a few hours make, Jake. Now he is in the intensive care unit. There's no indication yet from what I am hearing that he has been intubated, which is to say that he has been uh, essentially being put on a ventilator. But certainly business uh, for him to have been admitted to the ICU at all. And I just want to give you a little bit of a picture here in the UK of how most of these emergency rooms are operating. Basically, what happens when you enter the emergency room, there's a clean bay and a dirty bay. The dirty bay is for all suspected and confirmed COVID cases. Once you're in the dirty bay, it's, it's siphoned off into four different wards, one for suspected COVID, one for confirmed COVID, um, but manageable 
initial symptoms such as giving oxygen, giving an IV drip if you're looking at a secondary infection such as pneumonia as a result of the COVID-19 virus. And then the third ward is what they call full escalation. That is likely where Boris Johnson, although obviously he's the prime minister, it may be an exceptional circumstance, but the kind of ward, the level that he's at, full escalation, it doesn't get more serious than this, Jake. And I think a lot of people in this country tonight will want to know and understand better how it is that just a few hours ago Downing Street was really trying to spin this as him very much being in charge of the country, managing things and all his affairs from the hospital. This really is just a precautionary measure. And now we find ourselves here in this circumstance with the Prime Minister of Great Britain in the intensive care unit behind me, Jake. It's really a shocking development. Clarissa Ward outside the hospital where UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is. Thank you so much. Um, joining me right now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, as always, thanks for being here. Um, so look, it's possible that, you know, because he's the prime minister, they're just taking every precaution. Uh, but to be in the intensive care unit, what does that suggest to you? You know, I, I think this uh, this would not be a surprising development that that we hear that he ends up on a on a breathing machine, Jake. And you know, obviously this is a significant turn. But you know, you're in the we're in the middle of a pandemic. These types of intensive care unit beds are uh, a, a real premium, as everyone uh, really knows, Jake. So if you're sending someone, now he is the prime minister. So obviously, you know, uh, you have to view this a little bit differently. He may be sort of being monitored right now, but there clearly was a level of concern that was significant, Jake. Keep in mind, 10 days ago when he was diagnosed, last night he went into the hospital, they say for routine testing at that point, but you know, still to go into the hospital in the middle of a pandemic where there's lots of people who have COVID, you run the risk of uh, you know getting even more sick. It's a significant sort of uh, decision to make. And now with the intensive care unit, I mean, there's really just a few reasons why that would happen. The primary one being um, the need for, for additional breathing support, uh, probably through a breathing machine. Could be something related to his heart. It could be just the need for additional monitoring or trying some sort of new therapy. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, that's the clinicians are probably trying to sort out right now why the prime minister uh, why his condition worsened exactly. There's, there's the virus, obviously, but what is it doing to his body specifically? That's what they're trying to figure out so they can best uh, determine what to do next. And Sanjay, it sounds as though the, the protocols are, this, are similar, if not the same, in the UK as they are here, which is one can be really, really weak, feverish, achy, uh, loss of appetite, uh, dehydrated, uh, malnourished even, and still not be admitted to a hospital if you're right. not having difficulty breathing. You and I know lots of people who have this, including uh, two of our friends and colleagues, Brooke Baldwin and Chris Cuomo, yeah. who are at home, uh, who are dealing with this at home. For the prime minister to be admitted to the intensive care unit suggests, as you're saying, that there's something more, uh, some difficulty with the breathing, whether it's through uh, being uh, fed uh, oxygen or, or something more or significant. 
Yeah, absolutely, Jake. I mean, given the, the, the nature of things right now uh, in the world, going to the hospital, you know, really there's only enough beds for people who are seriously ill. So people are pretty much, unless they're seriously ill, being told to, to stay home. People who may have otherwise, under other circumstances, been admitted to the hospital. So he was, you know, admitted to the hospital last night and then this, this additional turn where he's going to the intensive care unit. So while the hospital beds themselves are, you know, uh, in short supply, intensive care unit beds even more so, ventilators even more so, and then all the people who make that work, you know, respiratory therapists, the people who are going to monitor the ventilator and monitor, obviously, the prime minister, uh, the, these are people who are very much on the front line. So you, you take a decision like that seriously. One thing I'll add, Jake, is, you know, another pattern that we've seen, and, you know, there are scientists all over the world trying to figure this out, is that you can see people who are sort of uh, cruising along, you know, they're sick, but they're, they're okay pretty much, they can stay at home, and then they do have a sudden decline. That can happen. Uh, you yeah. know, I don't know if that's what happened with Prime Minister last night or you know, this afternoon or what, but that can happen. And, and it just makes, makes us have to be more judicious to really pay attention to, to any kind of change that occurs, uh, you know, whether it be the Prime Minister or anybody else for that matter. Uh, and let me just ask you more, more uh, on a national level here in the United States, we've passed now 10,000 deaths uh, and um, I, I'm wondering where you think we are in this virus, in the fight against this virus, in terms of flattening the curve. Uh, is it state by state? What are you looking for? What are you anticipating? You know, I, I've spent most of the weekend sort of looking at a lot of these models, talking to people who've been creating these models, some of the big ones, some smaller ones as well. I think if you look at New York and look at the country first as a starting point, then comment about the other cities. But New York, you know, I think really the models do seem to suggest we have a curve. And when you look at these curves, you'll see that, you know, there's these huge shaded areas because there's such a, a, a wide range in terms of what the modeling shows. But it does look like we are, um, you know, still on the upward trajectory. Of, of what is happening in New York um, and uh, getting closer to where you know people call the apex but the apex is looking more and like it'll be a sort of flat line for a period of time and then come down as opposed to s sort of a single point in time and the doubling time is around six or seven days for New York it's similar for the country where you're also seeing six or seven days so I think the the apex or this flat top will be sort of different time periods but both within the next few weeks now Jake all right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And coming up, uh, the yeah. Surgeon General says this week, this week will be the toughest week yet for some hotspots uh, in the United States as deaths in the United States surpass 10,000 plus. More than an hour, three people and 13 computer crashes, all to apply for one small business loan. The stimulus troubles next. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying today that hospitals in his state are so overwhelmed there, he will ask President Trump to allow the Navy medical ship that has come to port there to take coronavirus patients, which was not originally the plan. CNN's Erica Hill reports now on the coronavirus fight from the epicenter, New York City. 250 beds at the Meadowlands in New Jersey, 2,500 at Chicago's McCormick Place Exposition Center and another 2,500 at New York's massive Javits Center, where COVID patients began arriving over the weekend. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo now asking President Trump to convert the Navy hospital ship Comfort to a COVID facility as well. 
The state's death toll still rising, though more slowly. While none of this is good news, uh, the flattening, possible flattening of the curve is uh, better than the increases that we have seen. The CDC today warning the country's death toll could be higher because data is lagging by as much as two weeks. As a New York City councilman tweets, the city may need to bury victims in parks because morgues and trailers outside hospitals are reaching capacity. That's not happening at the moment, though Mark Levine's staff says it is part of a contingency plan, which seemed to catch the governor by surprise. I've heard a lot of wild rumors but I have not heard anything about the city burying people in parks. Around the country, communities adapting and bracing for what the Surgeon General cautions will be the hardest and saddest week yet. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country. In New Orleans, mortuaries and morgues are at capacity. Louisiana's governor says they could run out of ventilators and beds by the end of the week. Officials in New York warn they may have even less time and resources. The numbers that we're really watching is still the number of hospital admissions, the numbers that are going into the ICU and eventually on, the, on ventilators. And we're not seeing a decrease in those numbers yet. Those are the numbers that are really going to strain our health care system. Meantime, severe widespread shortages of critical supplies across the country adding to the strain. A new government watchdog report finds those shortages are making it harder for hospitals to test and protect their staff. The government adding new travel restrictions for all cruise ship passengers and crew arriving in the U.S not allowed on commercial flights and subject to a mandatory 14-day quarantine. A third passenger from the Coral Princess, now docked in Miami, has died. In New Jersey, a mother and ICU doctor is recovering from the virus. Anxious to hold the children, she wasn't sure she'd see again. Dr. Julie John even making them a goodbye video. I just wanted to tell my kids that they are the most important thing in the world to me. I love you and I want to be there, but I can't. But be amazing, be nice. And and then I, I just, that that's the most important thing, right? When you're, when you can't breathe, the, I thought of my children and how I can say goodbye in the best way. Just heartbreaking to think how many people across this country, Jake, had a similar thought of how do they say their goodbyes. Thankfully, she did not have to do that. Uh, just another note, too, on what we're, we're seeing in terms of the comfort here. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy saying that he got a call uh, from Washington earlier today saying some of those beds, which are going to be now turned over for COVID patients on board the comfort, will go to patients from New Jersey. He didn't have a specific number of how many. But when you look at the 2,500 beds behind me at the Javits Center, the 1,000 on board the comfort, these beds are what the governor here in New York is calling the relief valve for the rest of the state. All right, Erica Hill, thank you so much. A heated argument inside the White House has now spilled out into the public. Sources telling CNN that the president's top trade advisor, Peter Navarro, lashed out at Dr. Anthony Fauci during a meeting in the Situation Room last night after Fauci warned there is no direct proof that an anti-malarial drug can help treat coronavirus. Navarro, who is not even remotely a medical expert, 
disagreed with Dr. Fauci, who is the head of infectious diseases at the National Institutes of Health. When asked on CNN earlier today why Navarro's credentials as an economist make him more qualified than a top doctor, perhaps the top doctor in infectious diseases in the nation, well, here was Navarro's answer. Doctors disagree about things all the time. My qualifications in terms of looking at the science uh, is that I'm a social scientist. I have a PhD and I, I understand how to read statistical studies, whether it's in medicine, the law, economics or whatever. Mm-hmm. CNN's Caitlin Collins takes a closer look now at how this public feud got started. What do you have? What do you have to lose? Ignoring the advice of medical experts, President Trump is now promoting the use of an anti-malarial drug that isn't proven to treat coronavirus yet. I'm not a doctor, but I have common sense. Actual doctors are hedging their bets, warning there's no medical proof that hydroxychloroquine will work and cautioning that it's still being tested. Wouldn't know that from listening to the president. And there are signs that it works on this, some very strong signs. Experts say they have concerns about the well-known side effects of the drug, including fatal heart problems. You could lose your life. It's unproven. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration granted emergency approval for the White House's plan to distribute millions of doses to coronavirus patients, though no substantive trials have been completed yet. But we don't have time to go and say, gee, let's take a couple of years and test it out. And let's go and test with the test tubes and the laboratories. At the briefing yesterday, Trump was standing next to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the country's top infectious disease expert. But when a CNN reporter asked Dr. Fauci for his opinion on the drug, it was Trump who answered instead. And what is the, what is the medical evidence? Yeah. Maybe 15 times. Trump's push for the drug has caused tensions inside the White House and even led to a heated disagreement between Dr. Fauci and Trump's top trade advisor, who doesn't have a medical degree. My qualifications in terms of looking at the science uh, is that I'm a social scientist, I have a Ph.D. Peter Navarro brought a stack of papers to a White House Situation Room meeting that he said was proof the drug has worked. Fauci pushed back, arguing that any decisions should be based on actual data. Two words for you, second opinion. Trump left that meeting and headed straight for the briefing room, where he told reporters this. I may take it, okay? I may take it. And I'll have to ask my doctors about that, but I may take it. So Jake, he not only said he would consult with his doctors, uh, something that people do not think is likely that he's actually going to take that drug, but he also told Americans to consult with their own doctors before they made any steps with that to talk about the drug that he has repeatedly and continually pushed from the White House briefing room. All right, a national lesson in the Dunning-Kruger effect. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just minutes ago, the Dow closed up 1,600 points, the stock market's best day since March 24th. This comes as pieces of the stimulus bill uh, continue to roll out. A new hotline for lenders today is supposed to help the stimulus program for small business loans after Friday's chaotic launch. This all comes after Wells Fargo said today that it maxed out on its $10 billion cap on loan applications. Let's bring in CNN's business anchor, Julia Chatterley. Uh, Julia, good to see you. An industry source told CNN for just one loan, it took 72 minutes on the application site. It crashed 13 times. Three different people had to try to do it. Is the technology there for this kind of demand? 
not on this scale, not on this size and not on this speed. That's what we've learned over the past few days. Remember, the dollar amount of lending we're talking about is 10 times the size of what the Small Business Administration did in the whole of last year. So the technology glitches here, I think, are vast. If you imagine the billions of dollars that banks have tried to agree to loans just in the past couple of days, Bank of America, I heard, did $25 billion worth of loans on Friday. They then have to upload all that information manually to the Small Business Association website. So 13 crashes in order to do that, to me, given the volume we're talking about, makes sense. There are all sorts of issues for all sorts of sizes of lenders here, Jake. The only good news I can give you is I spoke to the chief of the um, banking association that represents the vast majority of lenders. He said Amazon is helping the SBA with their website. And he said the money will flow by Wednesday and Thursday this week. You have Wells Fargo already tapped out. Citibank and Chase had trouble uploading applications to the Small Business Administration, the SBA. If this is the situation for big banks, how do the smaller community lenders, how are they able to do it? They're struggling with the same issue, not necessarily in terms of the scale of loans, but with the sheer inability to be able to give all the borrower information to the Small Business Association. I heard from one community bank that had three people. That's the only size amount of people that they could have adding this information to the website. They asked for 100 login credentials. They were given two extra. It's a problem for banks of all sizes. What I heard today, Jake, as well, is that the website itself went down at around 1 p.m. Eastern time, so no one was uploading information. I struggle to uh, give you an optimistic view of what we're seeing here. There's so much demand and the technology can't keep up. Today, former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen said that the unemployment rate, she believes, is, is likely 12 or 13 percent and, and going to continue going up. She also said unemployment might reach depression levels, which would be in the 20 percent range. She's not alone uh, making this prediction. Have you heard anyone say how long this unemployment might last? All the predictions suggest that We won't see a recovery now until the fourth quarter or into the first quarter of 2021. But Janet Yellen, former chair of the Federal Reserve, the central bank, was very calibrated. She said it's going to look and feel like a Great Depression. But this is different because the hope is that we can get back to business to quote her as soon as possible. Jake, you and I have discussed this before. One, the recovery is going to depend on the stimulus and how supportive it is. And we've talked about the challenges for small businesses. But two, getting in control of the health crisis. Those two things here are critical and we don't have either right now. All right, Julia Chatterley, CNN Business Anchor. Thank you so much. As always, good to see you again. Coming up, the hunt to find the origin of the coronavirus and why it's possible the original source might be still spreading it. Stay with us. Well, it seems clear that the coronavirus originated in Wuhan, China. What is less clear is Where it came from in that city, science continues to point towards wildlife as the most likely original source. And as CNN's Drew Griffin reports, how it may have spread from bats to humans continues to be a subject of investigation. Because we don't know where the novel coronavirus came from yet, the conspiracy theories fill the void. I'm telling you, the Chi-Coms are trying to weaponize this thing. Conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh with zero proof suggesting a Chinese bioweapon lab is to blame. 
a Chinese official tweeting, it might be U.S. Army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. But to find the real source of this pandemic, it's best to leave it to science. CNN has spoken to a half dozen virus hunters who right now say anyone who claims they know the exact source of the novel coronavirus is guessing. Did it come from bats? Most likely. Chinese researchers have already determined the coronavirus is 96% identical at the whole genome level to a bat coronavirus. 27 public health scientists from across the U.S. and the world wrote this letter in the journal Lancet condemning conspiracy theories and citing scientific evidence, including the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, that supports the theory that overwhelmingly conclude that this coronavirus originated in wildlife, as have so many other emerging pathogens. The common thread is wildlife. These pathogens emerge from wildlife. One of those scientists is one of the most preeminent virus hunters in the world, Peter Daszak. Because we'd been doing this work in China for 10 years, we had a whole series of genetic sequences of viruses we've found with our colleagues. So when they got a new virus in people, the cause of COVID-19, they could compare it to what they'd seen in bats. So they knew straight away, this is likely a bat origin virus. And because it has that 96% comparison rate to what was actually in a bat, that's why you're saying it's very, very likely this did come from a bat although we don't know what this, where this strain actually came from. We're very confident that the origin of COVID-19 is in bats. We just don't know where exactly it originated. That's what we need to do now. Oh, just a bat. It is a genetic detective story. Researchers will trace the virus that is killing thousands to a yet-to-be-captured bat in the wild, to a potential animal that became the crossover vehicle for COVID-19. Yes, the virus could have transferred directly from bat to human, but most likely, says Dashik, it was bats infecting farmed animals, the animals brought to market alive and kept with people in one of the most perfect incubators for viral infection, the Chinese wet market. This huge diversity of animals live in cages on top of each other with, you know, a pile of guts that have been pulled out of animal and thrown on the floor. Um, as you walk towards the the, the stalls you slip on um, feces and blood, these, these are perfect places for viruses to spread. Not only that, people are working there, people are coming in and buying animals, they're chopping them up in front of you, um, kids are playing there, you know, families almost live there. It's called zoonotic spillover. Professor Andrew Cunningham with the Zoological Society of London has studied them for decades. Wet markets, these live animal markets, are certainly a very good way of, um, if you like, trying to get a virus to spill over into people from wildlife. They're susceptible to getting viruses or other pathogens from the environment or from other animals that they wouldn't naturally come into close contact with, again, because they're stressed. Uh, and then they can become virus factories and they're in close contact with human beings in the markets and they're butchered in the markets um, by people in relatively unhygienic conditions. Other researchers point to reports from China that some of the earliest cases were not associated with the wet market. And then there's this theory, widely debunked, this paper from two Chinese researchers that says it is plausible that the virus leaked accidentally from one of two labs near the Wuhan seafood market. After an uproar and heated denials by the Chinese government, 
one of the authors told the Wall Street Journal the paper had been withdrawn because it was not supported by direct proofs. Experienced virus hunters Dashik and Cunningham say the theory is bunk. People don't keep bats in captivity. Complete baloney. We don't need to invoke conspiracy theories. It's just basic biology. Tensions between the U.S. and China over the origins of the virus and accusations of misinformation from both sides are slowing the work of the virus hunters who are grounded by the same travel restrictions that have crippled the world. That is concerning because without knowing where it came from, there is still a chance that original host species is spreading it. If there was a so-called intermediate host, an animal that the bat virus got into and then allowed it to get into people, the virus might still be in that host. And there are hundreds, thousands of these animals in farms, um, and maybe the virus is still there. So even if we get rid of the outbreak, there's still a chance that that virus could then re-emerge, and we need to find that quickly. Jake, the answer lies in China, and with Western scientists still unable to travel in yet, the trail on the hunt for this virus is just growing colder. Jake? All right, fascinating. Drew Griffin, thank you so much. Quote, death is imminent for us. Why one group of Americans say they are particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus and they are pleading for help at great risk to themselves. A special lead investigation, that's next. A special investigation for the lead now. These last few days have marked something of an inflection point for one specific coronavirus-impacted group that few lawmakers or most members of the public talk much about, prisoners. Last week, we learned about the first federal prisoner to die from coronavirus, Patrick Jones. He was serving time for a nonviolent offense. Prisoners from Lisbon, Ohio to Oakdale, Louisiana, have contracted the virus behind bars and died from it. Health workers warn that crowded prisons and jails with insufficient hygiene are becoming veritable Petri dishes, incubating the virus and spreading it far beyond the walls of the facilities. Some officials have promoted the release of some prisoners to reduce the chances of what essentially would be or could be a death sentence. Perhaps nowhere are prisoners more vulnerable to this than in Alabama, where the lead obtained footage of prisoners literally pleading for their lives. We need help. Desperate pleas from behind bars. Death is imminent for us. Prisoners in the Alabama correctional system fearing for their lives as the coronavirus pandemic spreads. It's going to be a mass grave site up in these prisons. CNN obtained this video from inside state prisons in just the last week, capturing just how deplorable conditions are in the facilities. The State Department of Corrections, in an internal document obtained by AL.com, sounding the alarm, quote, 21,900 inmates being housed in crowded dormitories creates a very high exposure risk situation. They, they are not giving us hand sanitizer. They're not giving us proper soap. They're not giving us uh, masks. Inmates crammed together, overflowing in some spaces. We stupid crowded, we super crowded, and it's super dangerous with the coronavirus. Alabama state prisons are among the most crowded in the country, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And the Justice Department found the 13 major facilities in the state were 182% past capacity. 
one even at three times capacity. ADOC here, they has no preventive measures to stop coronavirus from coming in. And by the prison being so overcrowded, once it's in this prison, it will flood like wildfire. Almost no testing of prisoners has been done. The internal Alabama Department of Corrections document reveals that in the worst case scenario, nearly 200 inmates could die, given that conditions will, quote, accelerate the transmission of disease among the inmate population as well as the Alabama Department of Corrections staff. Social or physical distancing is not an option. That's how, that's how close we are. And while some states and Attorney General Bill Barr have released some inmates early to help mitigate the oncoming disaster, Alabama, for the most part, has not. See, these are the people that they should be letting go due to the coronavirus. What in the world can this man do? The Alabama Department of Corrections gave us no specific response to our story, directing us to their website detailing their response to the outbreak in general, which says in part, quote, rest assured that all inmates in our custody will continue to be provided with the services to which they are entitled, including rehabilitative, medical, dental, and mental health through the duration of the COVID-19 outbreak. A response seemingly from a world unlike the one where prisoners say they do not even have basic hygiene needs met. You ain't bring no hand sanitizer with you? Ain't no. Ain't no. I ain't got The sinks are very outdated. We cannot wash our hands simultaneously at the same time, you know. Leading these inmates to risk retaliation to publicly beg you right now. My thing to the outside world is help. Help. Help for the overcrowding, help for sanitary uh, purposes, help for um, a release mechanism. We need to release some of these people. We need help. And forcing these men to potentially face a horrific fate no judge or jury sentenced them to. It is a death sentence. Death is imminent for those in my age category. For many, faith plays such an important role during these trying times. It is Holy Week for Christians. Passover will begin Wednesday night for Jews. Ramadan will start later this month for Muslims. Many places of worship have closed, but as CNN's Tom Foreman now reports, some are open, putting their faith over social and physical distancing. In the holiest week of the year for Christians, a battle is brewing. Between some government leaders convinced any churches still open are putting everyone at risk for the virus. Everyone needs to, right now at this moment, act like you have it and thank God that you don't. And some religious folks who flatly disagree. We need to open up so that people that are spiritual need, right now more than ever, our churches need to be open. Government enthusiasm for cracking down on worship services has been lukewarm in places. Of the more than 40 states with stay-at-home orders, 14 have given churches exemptions, despite outbreaks and fatalities already associated with religious gatherings, such as here in California. In Florida, where one pastor was arrested after a huge convocation, the governor's office has now defined worship as an essential service, even though some municipalities strongly object. This is not only undermining our ability to implement social distancing here, 
It's really undermining the sacrifices that millions of Floridians have been making across the state for the past couple weeks. In Louisiana, where the virus is raging, a Baton Rouge pastor is still holding services, allegedly drawing hundreds. The governor there? We're not going to enforce our way out of this. At the Vatican, Palm Sunday typically draws massive crowds to St. Peter's Square. The view this year, startlingly different. And to be sure, many places of worship in the United States have shifted to online services. You know, Easter's the easiest day to preach because all of us long for hope. Yet in some corners of the religious world, that's just not enough. So in Arkansas, the Awakened Church continues to hold services while telling worshipers to spread out and avoid hugging or handshakes. And the governor there is also pushing back only lightly. Uh, We don't recommend that, but if it's uh, within the guidelines, then that's understandable. Perhaps it is understandable to some who are very devout and the politicians who count on them for votes. But health experts also say they have faith. Faith that every time people gather in large groups, they're putting us all in danger. Jake? They sure are. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Coming up, quote, too naive or too stupid? The acting Secretary of the Navy blasting a commander for having raised concerns about his crew and coronavirus. You'll hear what he said next. And this just in, President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden have now spoken on the phone to discuss the nation's coronavirus pandemic and the response. A source tells CNN, President Trump earlier today tweeted, wondering when this call would happen after Biden offered to speak with the president about the pandemic. And at breaking news right now, CNN just obtained some audio of acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley blasting Captain Brett Crozier this morning. Crozier, you might remember, was fired as the commander of the USS Theodore Roosevelt after he wrote a memo sounding the alarm that much more needed to be done to protect his sailors, his crew, from a coronavirus outbreak on board. Here is the tape of acting Secretary Modley. And if he didn't think that information was was going to get out into the public, in this information age that we live in, then he was, A, too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. The alternate is that he did it on purpose. It was a betrayal of trust with me, with his chain of command. The former vice president of the United States, Joe Biden, suggested just yesterday that my decision was criminal. I assure you it was not, because I understand the facts, and those facts show that what your captain did was very, very wrong. CNN's Barbara Starr joins us uh, now. And Barbara, the crew, as we all saw, applauded and chanted for Captain Crozier after he was removed from his command. It was later revealed that Crozier himself has tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, What else did acting Secretary Modley have to say? Well, he calls it a betrayal, and that is so serious because, of course, in the military, to betray can be a court-martial offense. And there's an investigation going on, but Modley hasn't waited for any of that, calling him too naive, too stupid, if he thought dispersing this letter wouldn't result in it coming to the media, who Modley also criticized. And it may be rich irony that Modley's own audio recording 
the recording of Mobley's own speech to the crew out in Guam was widely dispersed as well. One of the things you hear on that tape are some of the crew members talking back to Modley, saying that the captain was only trying to help us. This is extraordinary, that it has gotten to this level, and the Navy is, is going to have to do something about it. They are going to have to gain the trust of this crew. They are going to have to get well and healthy. They are still trying to get hundreds of crew members off the ship, get them into quarantine. There is a long way to go on this controversy. Not entirely clear if Tom Modley will stay in office. Jake? Yeah, it's amazing. Modley saying that Captain Crozier was too naive or too stupid, not knowing that the letter would get out. And then Modley's audio uh, gets out as well. Uh, fascinating. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 